Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling confused about what to do next, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you like this episode, please remember to subscribe, like it, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with David Weiser, keyboard programmer for numerous Broadway, West End, and TV musicals, and author of the brand new book, The Boy Who Wanted to Rock. David, hello, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm well, thanks so much for having me. Of course, it is my absolute pleasure. So I know we just kind of figured this out. We're, we are, I guess, practically neighbors in the Massachusetts sense. But I, I, I'm curious, how has the pandemic been for you in, in your areas of Massachusetts? Uh, the pandemic has, has been, you know, not great. And it's, it's been a dismal year and it's been sad and depressing, but I'd get struck by lightning if, if I were to complain. Um, just two years ago, we lived in a very densely packed neighborhood in Waltham, which is like you know, 10 miles west of Center City, Boston, and it, it, on a very busy street in an apartment with no yard. And two years ago, we bought our first house up here in Haverhill, mm. where it's still a town, but the, the, the population density is nothing like what we were used to. It's, it's far less crowded, mm -hmm. lots of green spaces. We have a big yard, a, a bigger house. And so if we had to be stuck, at home in a pandemic for a full year. This is a much better place to be doing it. So having having the recent memory of a very crowded place in our minds still fresh, you know, it mm -hmm. by contrast, it, it seems pretty nice. Yeah. Well that's um, good. Yeah. The virus has been difficult for us just because of what it's done to my work industry and what it's done to my wife's work life mm -hmm. working for Pfizer. That's kind of the <laughs> Yes, I, I can, I mean, you know, this, it's been difficult for, for everyone, but I can imagine, especially knowing what you do, and then also, you know, hearing where your wife works at Pfizer, that's got to be a, a giant contrast of work environments and experiences. So that's very interesting. <laughs> so for my listeners who are less familiar with you and your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Uh, I work as a keyboard programmer. Um, so I'm a musician who sort of straddles the world of music and art and dealing with musicians and artists, but also with one foot in the technical world and dealing with sound engineers and sound mixers and sound design. And I'm, I'm supposed, you know, often my job is to sort of translate between those, help those two worlds connect whether it's on a show, a Broadway type show, a theater show, or even on a rock show, um, you know, rock tours for big acts. Um, my job is to, to help facilitate better relations between the artistic and the technical spheres. And, uh, and before doing it for Broadway, I had worked for a keyboard synthesizer company 
for for a bunch of years and that's where i sort of carved out that role for myself okay very interesting so before we go down there i want to start a little bit from the beginning just in in general where did your love of music come from uh it was it was there from the very very beginning my my mom and dad are both uh, were were both public music teachers and orchestra musicians and they're mostly retired now um, my my mother still teaches private flute lessons in the house <laughs> maybe like 15 or so she's fully transitioned over to zoom now at 81 years old she's very proud of herself um, but I, I you know I jokingly say I had it beaten into me as a kid um, but but I honestly I had it uh, it was it was there for the taking there was always a piano and when I was a very, very small kid, three, four years old, I would just kind of sit at the piano and, and plink around while my mom did laundry or housework. And no one tried to give me structured you know, instruction at, at that time, but it, it gave me this sort of very base level, maybe comfort zone or fluency with at least like where to put my hands on the keyboard and to know that if I go to the right, the pitch goes up. And if I go to the left, the pitch goes down. Um, and, uh, and then pretty early on, they, they did start teaching me. Maybe when I was around five, my mom would start sitting down with me every day and showing me a few things. And then towards the end of being five years old, like I think you know, during kindergarten, they took me to my first piano lessons. And it just kind of took, I, I was able to get enough of a, re- a reward out of it early on that that sort of made me hungry for more. Hmm. Great. So I'm, I'm curious then about your, your college journey. And so you, you went from international relations at George Washington then to a commercial arranging at Berkeley. So yeah. Can you, can you um, tell me a little bit more about, about that and, and, sure. and why you end up switching over? Well, I think for a while as, as, a, as a kid, I loved music, but I took it for granted. Hmm. And I, it was just always around. I always had it. Um, and I, just by a, a very, very lucky turn of events, I got a, a very nice scholarship to go to a, a kind of fancy prep school that was nearby where I could be a day student. And it was an opportunity that I I felt like I couldn't pass up. It was like getting to go to Hogwarts or something. <laughs> and in that world of studying Latin and Greek and reading college history textbooks and really, really a special kind of environment, it was, it was really cool. But there was, it was almost assumed that you would go into something, that I would go into something academic, um, that it would, that I would, you know, study something straight. And music was always on the side. Music was always an extracurricular activity. It was a love. It was a thing that I really cared about. But it, it, it was just so, it was kind of sort of taken for granted that I would, I would pursue something related to this incredible coursework I was taking at this school. And so we had a chance to take Russian, which was back in 1987. That was incredibly rare, <laughs> um, like really rare. No one went there. No one visited. If you went there, it was like newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so after studying a couple, you know, th- three years of Russian at that school, and we did actually go on a school trip to the Soviet Union, and it was mind blowing. Um, after that, I thought, well, gosh, I should I'll, I'll leverage this, I'll pursue this. And one year at George Washington, 
cured me of wanting to not pursue music like after <laughs> i i had during that year at gw and it's, it's a great school with a bunch of great instructors and, and it's a wonderful place it was not a great fit for me okay. um, the very large class sizes the uh just the the whole thing didn't feel right sometimes in life you you know you can tell when you're doing something maybe you're not meant to be doing and everything feels kind of wrong and off and that's that's a bit of what what happened and one one unique thing about that year was i had no music whatsoever no music classes no school based ensembles no rock bands with friends no nothing and that had an effect on me that i i hadn't anticipated and that's how i kind of knew that i needed to uh, to go back rethink regroup and and you know, pursue music. So after, after a year uh, at GW, where I, I did benefit in some ways, and I did learn a lot of things, and it was it was great to live in a city. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I went home and sort of nursed my wounds and worked a bunch to save up for Berkeley. I, I worked in a sheet metal factory for a year and a half during the days, and I bust tables at night and got you started my I got my first little taste of the restaurant business mm -hmm. and after a year and a half of that I, I went to Berkeley in 92 and came up here and, and have never moved away since I've been up Massachusetts I consider myself a native by now <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> excellent so why why particularly uh, commercial arranging? What what made you want to study that part of the music industry? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I first got into Berkeley, I wanted to do, I, I made my major align with the, my favorite parts of music for me personally, which would be songwriting and you know mm -hmm. having a band and trying to make it big. And so I was a songwriting major. Okay. And what i realized was that i could learn a lot of songwriting skills um on my own from from you know just from reading and 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 going to the library and and listening listening to music and reading i could i could accomplish a lot where it, it dawned on me that maybe I should take advantage of Berkeley and study something that I can't teach myself or that would be much harder to teach myself. Mm -hmm. And just after being there for a year, year and a half, I, I just kept my eyes open and I, I tried to always check out what my peers were studying, who, who was studying what and who seemed to be benefiting most from school. Mm -hmm. And the arranging classes and the people studying arranging that that seemed to be where it was at that seemed to be the best value for a place like berkeley because that's that's gonna that that's a skill that can certainly uh benefit songwriting it can benefit composing it can benefit so many things but it's a it's something that that is best learned in a in an instructor you know in a classroom type environment and not on my own um, so that's that's why I I, I, I I picked it because I knew it would be useful and I, I didn't know that much about it. Yeah, okay, that's good. So can you tell me a little bit more then about your journey post college and, and what you did in the early days? Got it. Um, all through the 90s, I played in rock bands and 
so, and, and some cover bands uh, and to be a part of it was an extension of music, my music education, mm -hmm. playing in these R&B, Motown, funk kind of cover bands where I learned a ton of blues tunes, a ton of Stevie Wonder stuff, Ray Charles stuff. And, and that, that, all that is with me to, you know, up, up to today. I, I, I dearly love that music. Um, but I also did an original band uh, called Sugar Daddy back when I was much skinnier and we uh, dressed up like pimps and spacemen and <laughs> played kind of funky stuff. Like if the Red Hot Chili Peppers had a keyboard player kind of thing. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we had, you know, I, I tell you know, depending on who I'm talking to, I just tell everyone I spent all my 20s at a at church in the library. Um, but we we had we had a ton of fun. We we played all the, the all the clubs in the Boston scene. Did some New York, some touring up and down the East Coast. Um, but as my 20s sort of as I got into the twilight of my 20s, I thought, oh, this is. This isn't, you know, I can't do this forever. And I was, I was waiting tables and bartending um, when I wasn't playing in the band. And that, that was actually very, very important. That was another big, useful component of my, uh, of my education. Mm -hmm. And I, I still kind of jokingly tell people that, no, well, I'm a, I'm a keyboard programmer. Really, I'm a waiter that got lucky. And <laughs> I still kind of think of myself as a waiter in a lot of ways, the, uh, on, on any, you know, given day on working on a Broadway or touring show, I'd say 80% of the time I'm utilizing skills that I acquired as a waiter, mm -hmm. um, just learning how to take care of people and make them feel looked after. So, so I did, I had a blast in the nineties and it was so much fun. And I, I spent a ton of time digging into keyboards on my own at, at my own little studio or in, at our, at our practice space and, uh, tweaking and adjusting and designing whatever sounds I needed for, for the bands I was playing in. And I, ever since I was a, you know, an early teenager, I'd had some kind of synthesizer or keyboard. So that was a thing I was really into. And that, you know, that just had always been there, that, that interest. I didn't study it in college because again, it was something I could kind of learn on my own. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something in college to, you know, be something that I couldn't learn on my own. And so while I was a synthesis kind of guy and a keyboard and, you know, keyboard enthusiast and a keyboard lover, I didn't want to major in synthesis or sound programming when I was at Berkeley, because that was, that was something that I could say, ostensibly do on my own. Mm -hmm. um, so by the end of the, by the end of the nineties, the end of my twenties, I, uh, I, I was, you know, ready to do something else besides the band. Although, although I, you know, I did really love that experience. And it just so happened that in Waltham, right, right outside of Boston, there's the R&D office for a very high-end boutique uh, keyboard and synthesizer company called Kurzweil Music Systems. Um, the founder of the company is a bit of a famous guy, a, a pundit, a talking head, Ray Kurzweil. Um, he, you know, he, he's called a futurist. And anytime there's a discussion on NPR or on The Daily Show that involves futurists or future technology, Ray Kurzweil is often brought in to discuss what he thinks. The, the term, the singularity, is a phrase that he coined. Um, 
so we're, you know, it's, it's a pretty interesting, innovative company. He, Ray Kurzweil started it back in the early 80s when he was working on uh, reading machines for the blind. And he was working with Stevie Wonder on such a machine when Stevie Wonder suggested the idea, well, why don't you could take digital snapshots of sounds and put them in a keyboard with microchips in it? And they thought, wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, so working at the synthesizer company, mm-hmm in Waltham was just a, uh, another lucky confluence of, of events where um, just because of who had come, what, what employees were coming and going at the time, there, there were hardware engineers and software engineers and sound engineers like me, but I was the only keyboard player at the time. Hmm. And that meant it, I had a lot of job security. <laughs> um, there, there were plenty of other sound engineer people in my department, but their principal instrument was drums or guitar or something, which, and that's still incredibly valuable and cool. Yeah. Um, but, but I got to kind of carve out this role for myself as resident keyboard player at one of the most cool, hip, prestigious synthesizer companies in the world. It was really a, it was really a lucky thing. And, you know, I, I've always been told and agree with that, you know, luck is what comes your way, but also what you make of it and what you mm-hmm. do with it. And so I tried, I tried to really squeeze every, mm-hmm. every little bit out of those opportunities. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, that sounds like an incredible opportunity to be part of, of Kurzweil's organization. I, I have a, a couple other friends who in the past have worked for different parts of his company and it, it, uh, it's always nice and fun to be around people who, who, think out but I feel like that's cliche to say say outside of the box but like <coughs> whose, whose mind kind of just wanders in a lot of different areas and they they combine <coughs> so many diverse people together to try to you know solve a larger problem I think that's absolutely amazing yeah it was it was it was a neat time and and it definitely it was helpful for me to get as a liberal arts guy, it was helpful for me to get all these years of exposure and working with software guys and hardware engineers, which, which are just electrical engineers usually, and, uh, and chip designers. It, that, that gave me years of, of you know, working my way up. I, you know, when I first got hired there, I was just chopping up samples, very menial kind of grunt work, but I was always trying to pay attention and learn about what the other departments were doing. Mm-hmm. And, that that was that was really helpful as I as I moved up through the ranks and I, I ended up becoming the lead sound programmer and I ended up taking over a bunch of marketing uh, uh, tasks. I, I became the product manager there, and that's a great thing about. I'm sure you know this better than anyone that working for a really small company, there can be a ton of work and it can seem, you know, there might there might be some crazy hours involved, but you can you can make opportunities for yourself if you want to wear another hat if you want to take on some extra work it's usually very very much possible at a small small company where at a large you know a large company like where my wife works they you know you're compartmentalized you're you're in a role in a department and it's incredibly well defined and kind of narrow and the benefit is they have infrastructure and they have resources and you can you can you know, they can move mountains if you need. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the, the, the really tiny company where I said, well, gosh, who's writing the ad copy? Oh, no one's writing the ad copy here. Well, I'll do that. I like to write. <laughs> and 
I just sort of took on more and more tasks. Um, it was it was a fun adventure. I'm very lucky to have, to have been there when I was. Yeah. Yes. I think that's. I think you you've hit the the, the nail right on the head with that one of like the the benefits of being at a, at a small company is you can try so many different things and try new opportunities that doesn't. Yeah. That that's not as well defined. It which is you know large corporations make that incredibly difficult because there are people who work in silos and they get mad sometimes if you try to let's say overstep your bounds in one way or another. So that's, sure. that's great that you've been able to have such a diverse perspective on that. So I'm, I'm curious then on the, the other, let's say phase of your career. So just again, looking at some of your bio, you've worked with David Bowie and The Who and Elton John, um, and then a number of Broadway shows from The Phantom to Cats to School of Rock, and then even Jesus Christ Superstar that was live on NBC. How did, so let's talk about like the first one. Was, is David Bowie the first large, let's say project you got involved in? That was in? the first big okay. thing I did, yeah. And where did that, how did you get that? that so all of, everything you just listed all came in some way from working at Kurzweil. Hmm. Um, I, I, every, every, every one of those gigs, the door was opened by my working at Kurzweil. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this happens with, with a, a lot of people in a lot of industries. I, I got very lucky in that I discovered that I was really good at programming keyboards, especially these very, very detailed and advanced Kurzweil keyboards. <laughs> I, I found a thing I was really, really good at. And that is a huge gift for someone who wants to work in the arts or who wants to be an entrepreneur. You don't necessarily need it. It's, you know, I've seen plenty of people succeed who don't have that, but if you find one specific thing that you're just really, really good at, mm -hmm. that's incredibly helpful, especially, you know, there's so much luck involved because I could be really good at programming keyboards, but if I didn't have a place to do it for work, everything would have turned out very different for me. So I, I do, you know, I don't ever want to make it sound like this is too much of a meritocracy here. It, you know, I, I worked really hard and, but just, just to even be able to discover that I was good at this thing mm -hmm. and to have a platform, a place to be able to do the thing I was good at, just that alone is incredibly lucky and unlikely. So I did some, I started to get, given some sound design projects for Kurzweil where, you know, an example would be uh, uh, creating vintage electric pianos. And by vintage, they mean classic iconic stuff. Hmm. And my, the thing that I was really good at was imitating sounds from classic albums. So the end result is that a customer can take their keyboard to a gig and someone calls out Billy Joel just the way you are. Oh, I have that exact sound here with a kind of electric piano with a weird phaser kind of sound on it. Okay. Or you're in a rock band and they call out Misty Mountain Hot by Led Zeppelin. Oh, I have that exact sound here and it's even named after the song, boom. And so that's, that's why it's important to do that kind of sound design work because musicians, musicians in cover bands wanna be able to cover these famous songs and be able to have the exact sound but what the other people who need those sounds are the actual artists themselves. When the Who goes out on tour, when when Elton John or Bowie go to went to do a show, 
they they don't have the gear that they had in 1974 this old clunky analog electromechanical gear that's probably you know decaying and falling apart somewhere and so they're always using digital tools computers and keyboards to replicate these iconic sounds from their albums and once i started to do some work from kurzweil a bunch of the artists who used the brand um, got the, you know, got the latest stuff from Kurzweil, played the electric pianos that I had made and love, love, loved them. They were, they were, you know, very, very enthusiastic about, about the work to the point where they got in touch with Kurzweil and tracked me down. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't like David Bowie did that. It was the sidemen. It was the, you know, it was yeah. the musicians in the band. Um, that came and found me for some of that stuff. And, and they were very kind to me. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I was really, really lucky. And then every year I would go to trade the trade show in Los Angeles. It's called the NAM trade show for the music manufacturing industry. And I was the guy who was chained at the booth all day playing demos. And I would just play mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder songs and then go through like, go through a whole playlist of classic rock iconic sounds, whether it's Elton John or Supertramp or Yes or whatever it happened to be. Um, all these, all these, or many of these big acts or the or the side players with these big acts would attend NAM and they would they would make a point to come find me and say, oh, you're the guy that did that work? Hey, what are you doing this summer? Because I would, you know, the the guy, the 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 guy from the Bowie band that I worked with was actually the drummer. The, the drummer on a big tour like that, the drummers often have uh, microphones on every individual drum and an effects processor box that you can use to kind of change the sound for each song as you go through the set list. And so the guy from Bowie's band, his name is Sterling Campbell. And he's, you know, he, he I think he got to start playing with Cindy Lauper, but he's played with uh, you know, some big rock acts like the B-52s and the Wallflowers, but Bowie was his main gig for a long time. And uh, Sterling Campbell had some Kurzweil keyboards because a lot of these guys, no matter what instrument they play, they're almost always all keyboard players in addition. And he said, hey, come down to, I live on the Upper West Side, come down in a couple of weeks and, and you can stay at my, you can stay in my spare bedroom and we'll, we'll hang out and play with gadgets. You can show me how to do some stuff and you can help me program my drum sounds on a Kurzweil effects processor box. And so that's how it started, just by sort of being, you know, making friends with people and uh, going to hang out with them and show them this thing, this one little thing that I know how to do that not a lot of people knew how to do. Um, and going from zero to Bowie, it's <laughs> like mind blowing. He's my favorite guy. He's my favorite artist, my idol. You know, that's the, it's the music I love the most and that I've loved for the longest. I've, you know, I've been a Bowie fan since I was a little, little kid and it's kind of never left. So to have the first high profile gig I did be the artist who's sort of at the epicenter of my musical world, inner world, it was, a, uh, it was surreal. And, and, and it, you know, it, it created this positive feedback loop where I had this huge thing to be grateful for that even on my worst day in the, in the years after that, even if I was having a horrible day, I could say, well, you know, I got, I've gotten to, <laughs> I have these great memories of getting to work on the Bowie tour and what a special thing that was. And I'm going to make myself feel grateful right now for that because it's really hard to be pissed off if you're grateful, you know, that's that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it was it was amazing to have that be the starting point. Yeah, that's 
that sounds like it. I'm so I'm curious then with all of with a lot of these tours that you have, how does how does your work how do you work with the tours with that? So is it they do they contact you in the beginning and then you you program the well, keyboards and then does it end or I usually set them up. I usually okay. help set up the shows and then I move on to the you know I go I go home after a couple of weeks. Um, so what happened at the end towards the end of my after after like eleven or twelve years at Kurzweil mm-hmm. or maybe ten years I I heard from the Andrew Lloyd Webber organization which is very very large operation you know they have they have productions of phantom of the opera going on in normal times you know in 10 countries or something and and that's just one show and they have cats and evita and they're always running in multiple places around the world so Mm -hmm. i think phantom of the opera has made more money than star wars or something and it's billions and billions in this huge huge group and they needed a new keyboard the, the models they were using were old and falling apart and Kurzweil didn't quite have a replacement ready. Mm-hmm. So they sent their guy over, their, their keyboard programmer. And uh, he, he worked with us at R&D on developing a new instrument, which is now used in all the, on all, all of our shows. Um, I became really good friends with the guy and I, I became his sort of designated dining companion and host. And... Uh, we just we just hit it off really nicely um and a couple years later he called up usually when he called it would be because you know a show in brazil or a show in mexico or a show in the netherlands was having some technical emergency and he needed help mm-hmm. and it was right before the holidays i was in my soundproof office like the studio room at kurzweil with my my intern right before christmas we were looking at funny videos and goofing around and i saw the phone and i saw oh it's Stuart andrews Oh God, I don't know if I should get this. It's going to be some keyboard emergency. And instead it was him asking if I wanted to become his US partner. And I didn't even let him finish the question. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, whatever it is. Yes, you're the most successful guy that I know personally. Yes, I will do it. <laughs> um, and so shortly after that, I, I kind of phased myself out of Kurzweil and I went from zero theater to Avita Broadway <laughs> in 2012. And it was trial by fire. It was, it was, you know, incredible. And I'm so grateful and lucky to have been able to do it. It was really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the, the way it works is on, on Broadway, I'll go down f- to a show for about a month and they put me up in an apartment and I, you know, the first, the first half of the rehearsals start at a big rehearsal building, usually Carol's re- rehearsal studios. Um, like on the up right by the West Side Highway, mm-hmm. and we we rehearse and I we have every we set up and babysit the keyboards. But before any of that, um, the the guy I work for usually the guy I work with his name is Stuart, and I'm I'm his associate when it when it comes to any existing shows like any of the Andrew Lloyd Webber shows that he's been doing for years. He ahead of time has prepared working with the composer, working with the orchestrators, he's prepared this very, very detailed keyboard programming that's for each of the three chairs in the pit, for each of the three keyboard players, there are thousands and thousands of sounds inside and the keyboard player steps through the sounds with a pedal and the little sound changes are noted in their music. 
-hmm. And it's very, very, very detailed stuff. And our job is to make a group of 13 or a group of 17 sound like 30 or 40, we're there to augment. And so a keyboard player could be playing piano for a couple minutes and then they'll hit the pedal and now they're playing bassoon with their left hand, but in the right hand they're playing bells and with their pinky finger, it's gonna trigger a cymbal crash. And they do that for just a couple seconds, hit a pedal and now they're playing harp and so forth for the entire show, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different sounds. And so when I go down to rehearsals, I'm a lot of the time I'm there to coach these players who are mostly piano players, classical piano players, who might need a little coaching on, well, we play a violin sound differently than you're gonna play an oboe, and you're gonna play that differently hmm. than you're gonna play timpani rolls on the keyboard. So it's this sort of new type of playing for a lot of players. And so I'm there in real time during rehearsals to sort of make sure the players are okay. Mm -hmm. And then during rehearsals, the music supervisor, sort of the, the boss of the music department who oversees the orchestra and the vocals, the music supervisor will make little notes and say, oh, we want the tuba to be louder here. Oh, we want the oboe to be quieter here. And I sit there with a little notebook and, uh, and make notes and make adjustments in real time. And we move into the pit. I, stick, I usually stick around for some of the preview uh, performances. And it, on an average show, I usually leave after a couple of previews. On a really big show, I, I might get to stay for like opening night. Mm -hmm. Um, but then at the latest, after opening night, they send me home and I get to come back and see my family. And mm -hmm. it works out really nicely. I'm only gone about a third of the time mm -hmm. and I get to be home two thirds of the time. So it's, it's, it's quite nice. Yeah. That, so are you only brought in at the start of a show or is it, or do they bring you in when they are transitioning, let's say, I mean, be a new musicians or. Oh, you got it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I do both. I, I set up the shows, but then periodically I'll go visit uh, for the, the creative team will will go visit a show maybe once a year. If it's a touring show like like Les Mis U.S. tour, Miss Saigon U.S. tour, yeah. um, the creatives might come once a year, especially if they're going to put in a new lead singer or if they're going to introduce an extra bar of, of, of a dance number where some extra music needs to be added. You know, there are always mm -hmm. little tweaks and adjustments being done. Usually it's to accommodate new actors and singers. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I was kind of curious on that. I know knowing that, you know, Phantom, like COVID aside has been running, I don't know, since the eighties or, you know, I don't know how long, but I know it's been around for a very long time and they're always swapping in new new people. And, and yeah, so that makes I, sense that you would come in for that. I, when I started working on Phantom Broadway, it was like 2013 when I made my first visit. Mm -hmm. And they, sometimes when I go down to visit, they have me sit in the pit, right in the, you know, right in there in the midst of the musicians. And that's always a real treat, especially on a show like Phantom Broadway where they had a big orchestra. But I remember meeting everybody and saying, oh, how long have you been with the show? And I think it opened in 87, you know, when I was, I saw it in 87 when I was in ninth grade. Yeah. And I'd say nine out of 10 people that I asked in this 30 person orchestra, I thought, oh, how long have you been here? Oh, since opening. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they, the trade-off is they do have to play Phantom of the Opera every night, uh, twice on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. but it's only for a couple hours a day and it's a very good gig it's yeah. very good money and then they get all the rest of their week 
free to do it, you know, to do anything else. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's great. So <laughs> I, I, I'd like to transition to your book. So you recently wrote a book, The Boy Who Wanted to Rock. Tell me about that. Ah, it's a it's a very unlikely uh, adventure. This uh, writing a book thing. Um, I have a I have a little boy. His name is Arlen, and he just turned six. And as uh, as far back as as we can remember with him, when he was in diapers, mm -hmm. this kid is a born rocker. Um, it it very much upended our notion of the relationship between nurture and nature. Mm -hmm. We, you know, he's our only kid and our you know, first kid. We, we thought, um, oh, we're gonna shape this little person. It's gonna be wonderful. And we, we quickly realized in, in lots of ways that he was very much his own person, even, you know, right out of the womb, right away, he was very much his own person. And so this thing started happening when he was, when he was two, um, we would have a playlist where, I, you know, he, he seemed to love the music we played and he seemed to really be into music. And so I would, I would put together these playlists with a lot of the music that I love or music that I thought, you know, would be a nice broad range to expose him to. And it had Queen and Bowie and Prince and James Brown and, you know, all, all kinds of fun stuff, but, you know, mostly stuff I like. And he definitely loves that stuff. He adores Queen and, and Bowie. But every once in a while in a playlist, the, uh, the random ACDC song would sneak in and he would drop his toys, walk over to the speaker, stare at the speakers, wrapped, completely absorbed. And when the song ended, he would cry and freak out and scream for more. And we thought, gosh, that's how unusual, but how cool. Mm -hmm. And so even from this very early age, you know, it's this weird thing that like, oh, my toddler got me into ACDC, but <laughs> kind of true where I obviously I, I had a good, decent familiarity with a lot of that music and, and yeah. ACDC, all the stuff that he's into now, like ACDC, Ozzy, Black Sabbath, Dio, Deep Purple. I had a pretty decent familiarity, but surface level with with that music and maybe Deep Purple. I knew a little bit more, but the others, not that much. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were, you know, my wife and I became his chaperones as we went down this rabbit hole of like, you know, hard rock, not, you know, not like Slayer, not, not <laughs> shit like that, but, yeah. but, uh, but this sort of old, you know, school of rock sort of clap, what, you know, what's considered classic rock now. Um, we, we were his chaperones and we went down this, this little rabbit hole and he, he just love, love, loves the, the you know, Deep Purple, ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne. He's, he's just super into that stuff. And he's very into guitars. Uh, he, he knows his electric guitars the way other kids know cars, you know, muscle cars and trucks. And he, he does love cars and trucks as well. He's really into that stuff. But yeah, he's, a, he's obsessed with Gibson guitars and can rattle off who plays what. Um, and so early on we you know once he was big enough to even think about getting him into some instruments i would have him come upstairs and plink around on the keyboards in my little studio and i thought well gosh he he's a pretty strong-willed kid he doesn't like being shown things especially by his parents so maybe we should get him an instrument that that dad doesn't play and any you know and he's into this crazy rock music so i thought all right well if he 
if he wants to be a rocker, let's get him a guitar. And I can, I can maybe show him the very, very, very basics. And if you move your hand up to the left, it gets higher, lower, you know, like that <laughs> kind of like on the piano. Yeah. Um, and so we got him this little three string electric guitar that has a little guitar amp and, uh, and he loved it. And right away, you know, got, got a lot of, uh, got a lot of positive energy out of it, got a lot of joy out of it. But the, as soon as he was, was old enough and you know, had the, the mental faculties to attempt playing things that he could hear in his head, like when he was late three or early four, mm-hmm. um, he could, you know, he could figure out some things on guitar, but he would also get really frustrated, really, really easily frustrated if he didn't have instant success at what he mm-hmm. was doing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, gosh, how can I, uh, what can I do to, to help? to help my, my kid connect with music, better connect with music. And maybe what, you know, what can I do to help uh, 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 diminish this amount of frustration that he's feeling to kind of offset and redirect the frustration. So that's where the book comes from. It started at first with right in the moment of him having a tantrum, a rage quit tantrum <laughs> of me. I, I, I just started telling him these funny stories and it seemed to work, so I went with it. Yeah, I, I, I would find, a, I would pick a favorite artist of his. I would pick Prince and say, you know, dude, just so you know, Prince had the same problem, man. He would get so frustrated when he was learning how to play guitar. And he would get so frustrated that he like chopped the dining room table in half with his guitar, it was crazy. And I would just make up these, you know, tall tales and, and it would make him giggle. And I think it was also helpful for him to hear about someone else having a tantrum. It made it easier for him to laugh off uh, his own outbursts. And, and eventually that whole shtick got turned into one of our companion songs on YouTube, the practice song, where each verse is one of his favorite artists having a tantrum and blues legend Freddie King throws his guitar to the moon. And, and we always joke, I always ask Arlen, hey, what's up? There's the moon. It's out. What's, what's up on the moon? And he said, oh, Freddie King's guitar is up there. <laughs> and in the, in, so I, I had established this little, this little ritual of, of telling him funny stories. Mm-hmm. So when he was four years old, it was uh, September of 2019, which seems like a million years ago. I was, uh, I was in rehearsals in the Netherlands for a show. And often when they move into the theater, there's a lot of downtime where I have to be there because the orchestra is there, but they're running a scene without any music just over and over for eight hours or something to get the lighting right. And so it's not really polite to have a full laptop out unless you're doing very important work, but otherwise it's best to have a notebook. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh gosh, you know what, what could I be doing right now to help Arlen learn music? What, what could I be doing right now? And I thought, well, I could write him a funny story. I, uh, I, I like the funny rhyming stories that he reads from Julia Donaldson and from Shel Silverstein, Dr. Seuss. And, and I thought, oh God, it's going to suck though. It'll just be silly and it's, you know, it won't be any good. And what am I doing? And I thought, well, you know, I can, no one has to know. And I had this little, you know, a little argument with myself and um, the second best piece of advice I've ever gotten, <laughs> the second best piece was someone, someone I work with who's like a, a, an award-winning uh, sound guy, sound designer, sound mixer for these shows. 
He said, just get the thing done. Just do something, get something down on the page. And that's 90% of the battle. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought of that advice at the time and thought, all right, I'm just going to, first thing that comes to mind, I write rhyming story for my kid, the boy, uh, there once was a boy who wanted to rock, boom. And I just put it down on the page and started to just add to it. And, you know, not all of it got kept, but every night I would take my little notebook back to my hotel and type up my notes onto the computer and make edits and move things around. And, and then every day when I went back to the theater, it was great. It looked like I was taking these copious notes in my notebook, <laughs> even when nothing to do with music was happening on stage. I was there scribbling away in my notebook. Um, but by the time that, you know, the three weeks of the trip was over, I had this somewhat finished story, finished in length. It, it wasn't completed. I, I did a ton of edits. And at every turn, I, I thought, well, what could I do with this next? And there were always thoughts of, oh, well, you couldn't turn it into a book. Oh, well, you, you can't draw. Oh, well, you, you don't know any book designers. Oh, it's a pain to get something published. But I, at each turn, I thought, well, let's just see. Let's, let's just see if we can do it. And again, just like all the other things in, in my career, there was a confluence of really lucky events. And, and uh, you, know, the, I, you know, I took advantage of it. And, and I, we worked really hard, the, the little team I put together. But so much of this book coming together is just luck. Because um, I, you know, it's a picture book, but I'm not an artist. I just wrote some funny, goofy little rhymes. Um, I have a very dear friend back, a musician buddy of mine, who was a, a student at Mass Art. This brilliant artist friend named Derek Lavoie, um, friends with him on Facebook. And I saw right around the time that I was writing these silly rhymes in my notebook, right when I got back from my trip, I saw that my friend Derek Lavoie, was this wonderful artist, but didn't really work much in art as far as, far as I knew. Um, he, uh, he, he did a, a coloring book. I, he posted on social media, posted on Facebook. Hey, I was hired to do this kid's coloring book. I've never done anything like this before. And hey, everybody, check it out. And, you know, I bought a couple copies just to support my friends since I have a little kid in the house. And the stuff looked amazing. This guy was always a prodigy always an art prodigy. He was always this, this the, our friend who could just draw anything and it looked amazing. Um, and I gave him a shout and I just said, hey man, where are you at? What would you, what would you think about taking on a, uh, a project like a kid's book? And he said, well, gosh, I've just recently sort of boned up on my computer chops and can now finally start doing you know, art digitally and so I've actually been looking for projects like this. So the timing of happening, happening to know a brilliant, brilliant artist who wasn't already overbooked and super busy, who happened to be a great dear friend, who happened to be like the nicest guy ever, who also happens to be a really good musician. That's a, that's a pretty lucky thing. Um, but I thought, well, if it's that lucky of a thing, I may as well take advantage of it. And so we, we started blocking out scenes and sort of just by the seat of our pants, read, you know, reading up online a little bit, like how do you make a picture book? And do you, you, know, you do little storyboards? And we just sort of based on, on what we could learn from, from resources online, which is a ton, you know, it, with, with learning from things online like that, it's, 
the, the information being online is not the problem. It's more finding curation and someone to steer you to the best bits of information because there's, there's so much of it that to find the relevant bits can be a little tricky. But we, we, got, we got the bits of info that we needed early on and Derek would work in black and white sketches and he would send it back to me and we would have notes back and forth to each other and we'd say, oh no, make you know. And, and sometimes it was, it was me telling him, but other times it was him saying, hey, I think we should do this. Other, you know, sometimes I would say, oh, well, let's, let's give him a mohawk or let's make him taller or let's, let's have the goblins have pots and pans on their heads. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just another lucky thing that he and I are sort of our sense of aesthetic and our, our sense of uh, art direction of, you know, what we wanted the thing to look at. We both well, on some chats and phone calls we both kind of said all blurted out all the same things that we like, you know, Jim Henson stuff from Labyrinth and, and uh, the Dark Crystal and, you know, that kind of that kind of vibe. And then we we started looking at different examples of animation and cartoons to get a feel for what the creatures should look like, how cute and cuddly they should be, how adult and anthropomorphized they should be. And we just kind of struck a balance that felt right. And and finding an artist, a collaborator with whom you can work, where that process happens real naturally, you know, that's not always automatic. We we were very lucky again um, to to have this working relationship and this working dynamic where we really dovetail with each other and you know respect each other and work really well with each other and. Uh, and so we worked we worked on that. We banged banged on these little sketches back and forth. And uh, I started to look into, well, if I wanted to make a book, an actual book, what would it, uh, what would it entail? Because at first we thought, oh, we'll make a PDF. Derek, hmm. Derek has a boy that's about Arlen's age. And so we thought, oh, we'll make this PDF thing for our kids and it'll be fun. And mm -hmm. It'll just be this little project for us. But I, uh, I started to, to read online about what it takes to do self-publishing and uh, self-publishing a picture book and self-publishing a picture book that's only print on demand. And that led me clearly, Book Baby's kind of the only game in town. They're the best game in town for self-publishing, but they're the only game in town if you wanna publish a book with illustrations that is also print on demand. And the, the print on demand was a, a really key component because having a basement full of books like that that seemed like a bridge too far. Um, and I really like staying married. <laughs> Didn't want to, all I could think of was like a Seinfeld episode where someone's grandpa has, you know, a basement full of overcoats or something that they were trying to sell. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be that guy. Um, and so it's this, it's this miracle of, of modern printing technology and, and modern e-commerce, e this intersection of, of cool technologies that allows you to be at home and write a book with an illustrator and have some back and forth and then send the files to Book Baby and they, boom, they make it into a book. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot, there are other steps in, in between there. But I found that optimism was always the key and not, not hopeless, ridiculous optimism, like not, not the kind of optimism that, oh, well, Let's get a publisher. People will see how cool our stuff is. And I'm sure that 
Houghton Mifflin will just come and pick us up or sort of Scribner will just grab us up, you know, that, not that kind of optimism, but the kind of optimism that said, all right, well, we don't really know much about book design. And we, we kind of discovered you need a book designer, someone to do the fonts and the layout and the copyright page and the title page. And so I went on social media and I said, hey, does anyone, anyone know a book designer? And someone chimed in and said, yes, I do know a book designer. And she turned out to be awesome. She turned out to be experienced enough to totally kill it for us, to do an amazing job, but not quite huge and famous enough that she was out of reach or too busy or something. She was just mm -hmm. the perfect person. It's just absolutely wonderful. And, and I mean, she is very successful and very, very busy and does a, does a great job. Um, but, uh, but wasn't, wasn't out of reach. And so we, uh, we, we made it, we made it all work. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly COVID, you know, it, it did so many bad things to my industry. It was, it was just a, a scourge on the arts, as you know, I'm sure you know, as well as anyone, yeah. what, uh, what the shutdowns have done to, to so many industries, but especially the theater industry and the arts industry and anyone who, you know, anyone who plays live music from a theater to a coffee shop uh, was affected. But one thing it did was it sort of took me out of the work food chain and gave me all this time on my hands that I just, well, gosh, I can, I can make what was this little side project. I can sort of focus on that now due to COVID. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of surreal and bittersweet to have a silver lining come out of something so dismal as COVID. But the, the shutdowns and, and that part of the pandemic did play a role in shaping this project. Um, once, we, once we had the book together, I thought, well, gosh, I, all of my friends and colleagues from the music world are sort of sitting around unemployed mm -hmm. maybe we should uh maybe we should do a couple songs and then someone asked oh well, what about an audiobook you're gonna do, do an audiobook and I thought oh god I haven't even thought of that but oh I I loathe the sound of my own voice and they asked well do you know any actors and I said oh gosh and they said oh god well David should what about a, someone with a British accent that would make it sound classy closer yes you're right well do you know any British actors and I said oh gosh well only one she's kind of the best one but <laughs> I I I uh, I know Rhea Jones she is usually the star of when I when I work on shows in the UK mm -hmm. um, she's the star with her name on the marquee while I'm the guy in the back dragging around the cables um but we, we've worked together on a couple of shows and she knows I'm sort of with the Andrew Lloyd Webber organization, you know, so she knows I'm a, she knows I'm part of the system, so to speak. But yeah. we, uh, we met on the Sunset Boulevard, which, which is a, that's Andrew Lloyd Webber's like film noir tribute. Um, and Glenn Close did the Broadway, but Rhea Jones was the person who helped invent the role back when the, when the show was created back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And there was a UK tour a couple of years ago where Rhea Jones played the lead in Sunset Boulevard. And I got to know her a little bit, had some chats with her and she's wonderful. And we, you know, we were always friendly. And then uh, at, at Christmas time, before Christmas time of 2019, we worked on another show again. We did, a, we did Gypsy 
in Manchester at the Royal Exchange Theater. And it is funny that this, this wonderful, amazing UK uh, theater legend, the two shows I've worked on her, she's up there on stage sounding like an American. You know, she's doing the Ethel Merman part in, uh, in <laughs> Gypsy, but she kills it. She just chews up scenery, like lightning bolts of charisma come out of her pores. She is like the closest thing to real magic I've ever seen in my life. She's by far the most impressive actor I've ever been around. And, you know, I, I could listen to her sing for days on and she's just wonderful and kind and cool. And I thought, oh gosh, I, I'm kind of a small fish to be bothering her, but you know, we're Facebook friends and I saw she wasn't working. And so I thought, well, the worst she could say is no. Mm -hmm. And so again, I, I try to err on the side of optimism and I, I sent her a note and said, hey, Rhea, would you like to, uh, I've got this silly kids book thing here, but I would love, I would be thrilled if you could narrate it. What do you think? And she was like, oh, I insist, I must do it. And, and she was so cool. And she's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it with me to Wales so I can get the story into my bones and I'll be back in a week and we'll do it. And she recorded it at her house on GarageBand with like a you know, microphone and her iMac. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was awesome. It was amazing. And in this day and age, you know, remote recording was already up and running, you know, well before COVID, but mm -hmm. people certainly took advantage of it during the era of COVID. And so we got her narration and I, I put together a, a super, super band um, that, you know, I never would have, I never would have been able to get Rhea under normal circumstances, under non-COVID times, because <laughs> she'd be busy, she'd be working. Um, and the same thing with the band I hired. I I got a very good friend of mine named Tim Quick to sort of, you know, I delegated him to sort of be the music producer of, of the band music anyway, and to kind of help run the band recording for these two songs and run the sessions. Tim, Tim and I worked on School of Rock Broadway, and then we also worked on uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar on N NBC. And so we, the, one of the most fun and satisfying parts of this project was getting to be the boss and getting to assemble the team, to get it, getting to pick all of my favorite people and they all happened to be available. They were all not working due to the pandemic. And so I literally hired the best guitar player I knew, the best drummer I knew who was the drummer from Jesus Christ Superstar. I grabbed the best bass player I knew who's a dear friend named Roland Guerin who was the bass player for New Orleans legends, uh, Dr. John and Alan Toussaint and a bunch of big jazz guys and some like kind of metal shredder bands he tours you know he's just very he was like centerfold of bass player magazine kind of guy like cover story of bass player magazine sort of dude um on bass and for vocals for lead singer we got a guy named uh, justin matthew Sargent, and he was the he was the lead in the most recent broadway production of rock of ages he was also John Legend's understudy on uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. So like a real serious, serious heavy hitter. Yeah. And, uh, and they even let me play keyboards on the, on the, <laughs> they agreed to be tarred with the same brush as me. <laughs> and uh, oh my God, getting to play, you know, this is the kind of band that like Sting or Paul Simon would hire. Like these are the best of the best of the best. And it was so much fun to, uh, to play on top of their stuff. Oh my God. God, it was just, it was wonderful. Um, 
but pretty much in every department of, of little, every little area of creating this book, I got to hire these amazing people who are so much better at what they do than what I do. Like they're, <laughs> they're so much smarter and more talented than me. And it was just a treat that to be surrounded even if it remotely and virtually, but be surrounded by these amazing artists because their, their rock power will rub off on you. You know, it, it, I mean, you, you've been around great people, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool feeling. Yeah, that's, I absolutely love this story. And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's an unfortunate what happened to the world during this time, but the fact that you could able to, you know, to turn these relationships into something deeper during a time when everybody was, you know, in, in between gigs, I think is absolutely amazing and uh, to be applauded because that's. Oh, thank you very much. Sure, it, sure. The, like the amount, again, every time you just kind of saying we added this person, this person, I'm, I, my, my jaw just keeps on dropping the amount of, of talent that you were able to pool together in, in such a short time. That's absolutely wonderful. It's, it's humbling. And, and I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful. I, I'm so incredibly lucky that I was able to do that. And everyone was so kind. That is one of my favorite parts about Broadway is that most people at that level do tend to be really kind. I'm sure you ran into this when, when you were working on West Side Story, that there, there are a thousand people in line ready to take any job. And so they can afford to not hire jerks. They can afford mm -hmm. to not hire difficult people. And so all, all the people that I had met working in theater and Broadway all tended to be super, super nice people because those are the people that get the gig. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone, everyone was so keen on the project. No one needed to be talked into it. They, they all said, oh, little kids playing rock shit, I'm in, that sounds <laughs> awesome. And we would send this cool artwork from Derek that had the kid with the, mo the, you know, with the blue mohawk and the Gibson Explorer guitar. And everyone would say, little kid with a mohawk, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for Derek's artwork, artwork looking so cool and, and also kind of legit, Mm -hmm. um, maybe people wouldn't have jumped on board quite so easily, but, but for whatever reason, they, they came on, everyone came on board really quickly and, and easily and everyone had a blast doing it. And, you know, there were no, there were no snafus. There were no communication missteps. There were none of those times here. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting in, in the corporate world where you all sit down in a meeting and you agree well, okay, what our next strategy is for the next month, we're going to do A, B, and C. And then you leave the meeting, you go back to your, to your desk, and you get an email from your boss that says, oh, today in the meeting today, we decided to do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, no, dude, we said A, B, and C. <laughs> there was none of that kind of thing on this project. And that, you know, people call it synergy, people call it magic, you know, but, but it's this, you know, there was, there was no foolishness and there were no, there was no communication difficulty. And that, that just made it such a treat. It was, it was almost too good to be true working on this project. Um, and I confess that after a year of quarantining and a year of isolation and a year of getting to be sort of the boss of everything on this project and being surrounded by wonderful people who were doing this great this project was so perfect that I, I confess that for a while the thought of going back to work again seems <laughs> far less cool where I'm just like a cog in a machine and of course I, I got over that and I'm very grateful to be uh, to you know work on theater shows but yeah um, 
but yeah, it was it was surreal and wonderful, and it was a welcome silver lining in what could have otherwise been a really dismal year. Yeah, that's wonderful. And and who knows, m- maybe the next version of this book is the boy who wanted to rock the musical. There there is always you know that that kind of thought gets batted around that it could you know I, we've got a friend at Viacom that we're gonna send you know, pitch it to the, to the people who run Nickelodeon. And, mm-hmm. you know, that I have made sure that show producers, theater show producers are aware of the book and have received copies and have seen the music. But for, for right now, we're, we're just enjoying, you know, promoting the book. We have uh, concept art and, and, uh, and a new project um, for the girl who wanted to groove. Mm. We just, just got our girl Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted we wanted we wanted the next story to be a girl. The, the first one was a boy because Derek and I both have boys. Sure. Um, the second one will be a girl. Uh, same thing. She'll she'll be playing a couple learning or playing a couple different instruments. But this time it'll be funky stuff. It'll be like Sly and the Family Stone and Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and Daft Punk and you know kind of dancey funky stuff. And then at the end, instead of a cave full of goblins, it'll be Martians taking her up to the mothership and it'll be flying saucers and spaceships and kind of writes itself, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> um, I love it. When when is Do, do you have an, an idea when that version might be coming out? I don't, but I, okay. I would guess, you know, it would be at least a year out because it does take does yeah. take a bit of time to put these things together, but probably a, a year-ish, we'll, we'll see. Um, okay. Right now, we want to plug the book, the first book, to see if the next one would still be self-published or if a publisher would be interested in doing the next one. But we're happy to, to do it ourselves, though. It's, sure. it's been a lot of fun. Oh, I love it. That sounds, oh, that sounds awesome. So, David, with everything that you have done and experienced, what would you say has been the best advice that you ever received? The best advice? I've, I've gotten a, a lot of good advice over the years, but the one that really stuck out to me um, was uh, don't underestimate young people. And I confess, I don't even remember which, which person said it to me. I think it was one of my instructors at Berkeley, actually, like a very, I think it was my jingle writing instructor. He was a very accomplished guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, good times for the great taste of McDonald's, CVS, like the really, mm-hmm. really big ones. Let's go down to Bob's. Yeah. Um, he said, don't underestimate young people as, as you get older and as you get more successful. And, and that has always really served me well because I, I do think um, it, it, it helped me in my 30s where I, I would, you know, there would be sometimes a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to want to turn my nose up at something, some newfangled thing that the kids were doing. And I always reminded myself that, no, 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 don't underestimate young people. Be, you know, Bowie was, Bowie was a big advocate of that kind of thinking. Of course, he had the lyric, uh, these children that you spit on as they try to change their world are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through um, from the song Changes. And so that 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 advice I got kind of dovetailed with that with that Bowie lyric, and and it's always served me it's always served me well. Young people are doing such great things, and I always I mean I, I'm very lucky that I get to run into these amazing young people on on Broadway, um, but even elsewhere, young people are hungry and they're motivated, 
and they're going to think of new ideas that other people haven't thought of. But the difference is compared to when I was young or when Steve Jobs was young or when Bill Gates was young or anyone, nowadays, a young person who's sufficiently motivated, who's also very bright, has at their fingertips sort of all the printed and you know, all the printed information ever created and all the musical recordings ever created. And so what young enterprising musicians are able to teach themselves, you know, there's a great exercise as a musician where you, you learn the music of your favorite performer. If you're a trumpet player, you study Miles Davis, and then you go down a rabbit hole if you find out, okay, well, who was Miles Davis's favorite player? And who was that person's favorite player? And that was really expensive to do back in the 80s, you know, when I was learning about music and trying to listen to music, you had to buy a separate album and, you know, it was a kind of juggling beer money versus buying another album. Where a kid learning music nowadays can find their favorite artist, listen to everything ever recorded by that artist on YouTube, and then find out who that person's influences were and listen to all of those albums. And, you know, the, 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 the kind of learning they can do is so exponentially more powerful um, that even, even before the internet, I had sort of got it into my head to not underestimate young people. But nowadays it's, it's thrice as true. Wonderful. I, I really appreciate that. So, so thank you again, David, for, for taking the time today to chat with me. This has been absolutely fantastic. If the listeners would like to buy your book, or see what you're working on, where is the best place they can go to do that? So if you just do a, you can go to theboywhowantedtorock.com. Theboywhowantedtorock.com is our website. It's got options for buying. Uh, Amazon is there and also BookBaby. BookBaby is the company that published the book, but they also have, a, you know, they have a retail shop there and they're really kind about sharing a, a, a nicer percentage of the proceeds with their uh, with with authors and creators, and because of that, we thought that something we should do. You know, we we got a we got a really big kick out of being able to provide paying jobs for artists during COVID. But we thought, well, what's an ongoing thing that we could do to keep you know putting a little bit back, giving a little bit back to to our fellow arts workers? Um, so we 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 took any book baby sale that comes through, we agreed to donate $2 to the Actors Fund, which is a great charity that is sort of a, a social, or it's a sort of a safety net for arts workers, um, actors and musicians, you know, not the famous ones, but just rank and file working actors and musicians, stagehands, set builders, hair and makeup technicians, sound technicians, a anyone who uh, who works in the arts um, can receive help from from the Actors Fund, whether it's emergency financial assistance, whether it's programs to help find affordable housing, counseling to help find uh, insurance and healthcare. It's it's a really really well thought of charity, mm -hmm. and so we're very happy and excited to tie that to any purchases through Book Baby. So if you just do a quick Google search, the boy who wanted to rock. All of our stuff comes up right at the top. Our website, the YouTube stuff with our songs and our, our audio book. It all is very, very easy to find if you just go to the boy who wanted to rock. Wonderful. I will. So thank you for, for telling us uh, all of those, all the information. 
I will put that in the show notes so they can click right through and especially the the link to book baby because it's it's uh, you've chosen a wonderful charity the the actors fund is is absolutely fantastic and so if if I can help uh, pr promote people to buy the book through through book baby so that the so do a donation will go in as a part a part of the sale then that's wonderful and so we'll wonderful see what we can do with that one but again David thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today I really appreciate it Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Black Bones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yurikataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.